Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Lisa Hanawalt, designed the animated series BoJack Horseman. It's a show that uses both human and animal characters, voiced by actors like Will Arnett, Amy Sedaris, and Aaron Paul. And generally, people love it. Of course, there was that one time when a viewer noticed something specific missing from the show and decided to write a sternly worded email. I mean, it was amusing because it was so entitled. It was just like, no, I really do think that for the betterment of the show, you should go back into animation and add in Tales and then re-release the show. I read the email. It was amazing. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll sit down with Lisa Hanawalt. She and I will talk about BoJack Horseman, her new book, Hot Dog Taste Test, and, of course, Martha Stewart's horse. The name keeps changing, the way they spell it on her blog and updates. So it changed to Banchunch. Sometimes it's Banchunch, one word. Um, and, yeah, it's a real mystery. I feel kind of like Sarah Koenig on Serial. Like, I'm just constantly trying to find out new information about this horse. I'll also talk to Wyatt Sinek about his new stand-up show, Night Train. We'll talk about the importance of having different voices on the show. By which I mean, not just a bunch of white dudes. I would like to put more of an emphasis on trying to create a place where all those comedians can coexist and it doesn't feel quite so isolating if you're not a specific type. I want to be clear. Me and Wyatt agree. White guys are great. Don't write me any emails. Okay, I will also tell you about the pitch that, when done right, confuses every hitter in baseball. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. In one of the comics from Lisa Hanawalt's new collection, Hot Dog Taste Test, she's commiserating with a cousin. They both love children. They don't want their own children. They feel like adult children. Hannah Walt's work is full of childlike energy. She's obsessed with animals and also animal-human hybrids. She loves food. She loves to play. One of the most memorable images in the book is a technicolor feast of fanciful foods. Give it a second. As you look, it sinks in. The table is a galloping dog. Hannah Walt also runs the visual elements of the Netflix animated sitcom BoJack Horseman, where people and animals live together in a strange, hyper-real Hollywood. Here's a scene from the show. Lisa plays the voice of a chicken who's escaped the slaughterhouse. Todd, who's voiced by Aaron Paul, covers for her when a police officer comes to ask some questions. The police officer, by the way, is a cat. What seems to be the problem, officer? Fuzzy face. Meow, meow, fuzzy face. A chicken for days chicken fell off the back of a truck, and now i got to find her and take her back to the slaughterhouse. You haven't seen any extra chickens running around, have you? No, I don't think so. Who's this? Uh, this is my, uh, my, my wife. Becca! Becca, yeah, my wife Becca. Becca Chavez. Okay. There she is. Yep, she loves her books. Big reader. <laughs> Real nerd. Becca! Back off. Okay. I'm sorry, honey. Hold on. If you're really a nerd, who's your favorite Baroque composer? Bach. Bach? 
Not Vivaldi? You're insane. Bic. Yes, I am holding a big pen, but I don't see how that's relevant, Mrs. Chavez. Becca! Sorry, Becca. She's a charming woman. <laughs> Lisa also hosts MaximumFun.org's podcast, Baby Geniuses. Uh, Lisa, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry that I played your, was that your acting debut on the show? It was, yeah, my voice acting debut. Um, did they, <laughs> so did you have, tell me about the audition for that role. Um, I actually read it at a table read. Was um, it just like, was it just like they just needed someone to make chicken noises? Well, Raphael is a good friend of mine. He's the creator of the show and he happens to know that I love making chicken noises. <laughs> Um, ever since we first became friends in high school, I loved making chicken noises. So, uh, yeah, he used that skill of mine. <laughs> um, it does speak to one of the special things about BoJack Horseman. And it's something that I think you've had a lot of influence in, mm -hmm. which is the weird and specific relationships between uh, the animal qualities of the animal characters and the human qualities of the animal characters. Yeah. Was the idea for the show always that uh, it would be animals and people living together, but the animals would only mostly act like people? Yes. Um, you know, it was Raphael's idea, but it also was partly inspired by these drawings I was doing of animals dressed up in people clothing. And I think for us, it's it's really fun if you almost start to forget that they're animals and how weird that is and then they do something that reminds you like there's a background <laughs> gag or uh yeah chicken will make a chicken noise or drop an egg um <laughs> that to me is just like endlessly funny they, i mean the show really is full of details like that yeah and that's something that a lot of the details are visual yes um how did that end up happening well, it's a combination, you know, it's a very collaborative project. So it's partly me. I just love details. I like things that make people take a second look. And, you know, especially since it's on Netflix and you can just rewatch it endlessly um, without waiting for it to air again. You can really catch a lot of those background gags. Um, and then also our director, Mike Collingsworth, loves animals and loves puns and gags. And so he puts a lot of those in. Um, I feel like you know, everyone who works on this show, that's an interest we all share. Do you have, is there something, is there like a t-shirt that you created that you're particularly proud of that was on a character or an animal thing that an animal did that you're particularly proud of? Oh, there's one shirt that's uh, like, save a bike, ride a tree. <laughs> and I don't even know what exactly I'm making fun of with that, but it's very funny to me. And a lot of <laughs> people have made their own versions of that shirt since seeing on the show. Um, I so you host a you host a show in our podcast network uh, called Baby Geniuses. So you're around the office once in a while. Yeah. And maybe a year or two ago, um, you shared with me this email that you'd gotten. Oh yeah. Uh, about BoJack Horseman, the title character of BoJack Horseman, and maybe before we get into the content of that email, maybe you could describe the character. You know, just just aesthetically. Well, he's a horseman, and he's wearing a sweater and uh, a suit jacket and jeans and Converse. And he's maybe a little overdressed for Hollywood living. <laughs> so, yeah. so what was the concern that was raised in this email? Because well, I've been obsessed with it ever since. If you're describing the email, I think you are. Um, I am. The concern <laughs> is that there are no tails on the show. <laughs> um, and that was something we considered, but... You know, I will say, yeah, it was from a furry gentleman, a 
he was a member of the furry community, and furries happen to really love tails. So quite a few of them are really upset by the lack of tails. It's like, you know, like the show is like so close to something they, they want, like their dream, and then it fails in this huge area. They were really disappointed. Well, the fur- I mean, the furry community is a really remarkable thing. It is both completely ridiculous but, yeah, in some ways, yeah. But also, like, really lovely. Yeah. Like, a really lovely community that's built on, you know, this sh- shared passion and just the idea yeah. of creating your own identity, And I must say, I think I am a furry by d- the definition of furry, which is that I, li- I like to envision myself as an animal a lot of the time and put myself in the, you know, pretend what it would be like to be an animal. What was amazing to me about this email was... It wasn't just could it what the the quality of it was not just could you please No, it was not a polite email. It was it was like it was like really it, I mean it was amusing because it was so entitled. It was just like no, I really do think that for the betterment of the show, you should go back into animation and add in tales and then re-release the show. It really read like someone had created a spreadsheet yeah. And, and an equation that determined right or wrong should a tail be on an animal. Yeah. And the answer had come out yes. And they were doing you a favor by letting you know. Yeah. I mean, I did respond and I got into it with him about, you know, well, do you understand animation budgets and schedules? This would be really difficult to add back in the tails as if that was ever a consideration. <laughs> um, but, yeah, he was he was a little disappointed. And that makes me sad. But, you know, you can't please everyone. When you graduated from school with a degree in studio art, did you yes. think that your career was going to be uh, drawing pictures <laughs> of weird food? and animals being born out of flowers? No, I didn't. I mean, I guess I I thought maybe I'd be doing large-scale paintings of animals coming out of flowers. (laughs) (laughs) And that I would have, like, a solo show in Chelsea of that subject matter. Um, But that hasn't happened quite yet. I'm I'm getting to it. (laughs) How did did it come to be that that became your career? I just kept doing it. You know, when I graduated college, I had a secretary job that I worked two years. But in all my free time, I was making a lot of comics and I started getting illustration work based on those comics. And yeah, it's it's led me to all kinds of interesting places. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Lisa Hannawalt. She's the designer of the Netflix animated series BoJack Horseman. Her new book is called Hot Dog Taste Test. Lisa, would you read something from the book? Yeah. This is a piece that you originally wrote for the magazine Lucky Peach, right? Yes, it's a food magazine, and they um, asked me to be a regular contributor. Um, And this particular issue was about breakfast. So this piece is called Your Breakfast Questions Answered. Question. What is an egg? Answer. A temporary home. What is a sausage? Pieces from a bunch of pigs. What is orange juice? Fruit blood. How do you feel? Ready for the day. Any other questions? No. <laughs> we should say, like, sure, like you're, uh, you know, you're a comics artist who's uh, been hired to create art for Lucky Peach. That is literally just a list that you've written on a piece of paper, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Artfully. I, th- I think when I'm making pieces like this, I get into kind of this manic persona where I play real fast and loose with syntax and grammar. Um and that just makes it funnier to me. 
there's one sentence I wrote in here uh, on one page. There was a study to not skip breakfast, and it, makes, <laughs> it really makes me laugh because <laughs> it you kind of get what I mean, but there's a lot of information missing. It's kind of like a a messed up child wrote it, or yeah. <laughs> when you were you uh, were you excited to get a job where you had to regularly write about food? Yeah. But not just because I like food, but because I, I figured food is such a huge topic that I could really explore the outer reaches of what that even means. Like Did, in, in one of these pieces, I go and I swim with baby otters. And the editor was like, well, you just, you know, add a sentence in there about what they eat and that'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a little bit of extra focus on tilapia fillets. Yeah. I mean, they... They ate up those fish super fast. It was really fun to watch. What is it like to swim with otters? Um, it's delightful. They're How... actually they're a lot like my dog, but there's many of them, and they're small, and they're wet, and they're really hyper, and they're just swimming all around my body. And we should explain that ordinary otters are not something you should swim with. No. They're Typic- usually pretty they're, fierce. They're carnivores. They'll try and, like, bite you. Yeah. One of them did bite me a little bit and then was reprimanded by the trainer. He, like, took the otter and was like, no, no. (laughs) I don't know if the otter learned anything. (laughs) They don't seem to have a conscience. (laughs) That's another animal I'd really like to be is an otter. I think that would probably be the most fun. Because it's psychopathic? Yeah, they're a little bit psychopathic, and they just seem to have fun all day. You're also completely obsessed with horses. Yeah, I am. I wish I wasn't. (laughs) I can't help it. How long have you been obsessed with horses? I've always liked them. And uh, then when I started taking riding lessons when I was eight, it like bloomed into this full-blown obsession. I mean, that is like 60% of eight-year-old girls. That is their ultimate number one dream. At least least when I was an eight-year-old boy. Yeah. And And there's eight-year-old boys who ride horses too. I'm not saying, but there's a... I remember when I was in elementary school... There was a group of girls from my class, probably six, mm-hmm. who basically at recess had meetings <laughs> about horses, <laughs> and then they would gallop around the playground. Yeah, I was a galloper. I I had uh, holes in the knees of all of my jeans because I was crawling around so much. Oh, you were galloping on all fours? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like. I was a horse. I had to be... Oh, wow, because the galloping that was going on at my elementary school was more like... They were riding. They were, they were riding, but they were doing gallopy leg motions. Yeah, there's like a deeper level of horse girl, I would uh-huh. say, that I was in, which is where you're getting calluses on your knees and the tops of your feet because you're actually crawling so much. How long <laughs> did you impersonate a horse in this manner? Um, I did it until I was about to go into middle school, and my brother sat me down and said, you know what? When you go into middle school, you can't do this anymore because it's really embarrassing and people are going to make fun of you. So you have to stop. (laughs) And so I stopped. Wow, that's heavy. I know, but he was right. (laughs) You can't be doing that in middle school. That's a battleground. (laughs) You need to get together. Did you like grow up at a country club or something? I don't understand. (laughs) I don't understand how you're from Palo Alto. Like I don't understand how anyone who didn't isn't from just like a ranch. Yeah. Ever how a horse could ever be a real thing to them. My parents and my yeah, my parents would drive me like 45 minutes to a barn to take lessons. I mean, bless them. (laughs) 
they really took a lot of time to do that because that's what I wanted. How long did you do that? Um, I would go in and out. You know, I'd take lessons for a year, and then I would have an accident and get scared, and I would quit for a while, then I'd go back. I did eventually quit for, like, 17 years because uh, it was, you know, hard to stay in the habit of riding horses when I was in college and whatnot. Um, but then I recently started again a couple years ago. What What were the circumstances of starting again? Um, I <laughs> just realized, oh, I'm an adult, and I have a job, and I can drive my damn self to horseback riding lessons if I want. So, yeah, now I, I ride in Burbank. First of all, <laughs> I've seen the horses in Burbank, California. Oh, yeah? It's crazy that there's horses in Burbank. It's kind of magical because it's this whole neighborhood where people can have horses in their backyards and ride them in the streets. And the there's light switches to cross the street, and they're, like, super high up so you can hit them while you're on horseback. This is totally real. Like, I want people who live outside of Southern California to know that we're not spinning a fantastical yarn here i didn't imagine it all in my head it's real there's like there's tunnels under the freeway and there's bridges over the river so you can get into griffith park and do all the trails it's like my fantasy (laughs) how do you feel when you ride a horse i often feel afraid uh because it is kind of like an extreme sport and then i have to like kind of meditate and sort of let that go so that's part of it I have a friend who is uh, an equine therapist. Ooh. And before she took that up, she was a, like trail riding instructor. Yeah. Or something. She led, you know, Can you trail introduce us? Because I would like to be friends with your friend. Um, <laughs> and she uh, was thrown from a horse a few years ago mm. and like came within inches of being killed. Yeah. She she was fine. Um, but I don't think it had occurred to me that riding a horse is not just kind of dangerous, but like profoundly dangerous. Yeah, it's supposed to be four times more dangerous than motorcycling. So, yeah. <laughs> Do you think about that when you're riding? Yeah, I try not to. You know, I think about it and then I have to let it go. Because I have to make a decision, like, do I want to continue doing my favorite thing in the whole world? Or do I want to stop because, you know, I might break my arm and then I won't be able to draw for months. Why is it your favorite thing in the whole world? I don't know. I just I just love it. It's exciting. It feels uh, thrilling. Um, but then it's also very calming. I look cool up there. <laughs> well, one of the things that you say, one of the th- things that you say in the book is that you never feel, uh, I think it's prettier than you feel after you get off of wars. And I yeah. thought that was such a specific and kind of touching thing. Yeah. It's like, I'm really sweaty and dirty, but I just feel like myself at my best. I want to play a song from your podcast, Baby Geniuses. <laughs> Um, there are recurring po- there are recurring segments on the podcast. They have theme songs. My guest is Lisa Hanawalt, um, and this song is about a particular horse who's a <laughs> sort of leitmotif on the show. <laughs> leitmotif. Challenge. When the clock strikes noon, we can have a picnic lunch, find one full moon, and we're chatting about chunch. Chunch. Uh, who is Ban Chunch, or what is Ban Chunch? Well, it started out as Ben Chunch, and it's the name of a pony that Martha Stewart bought for her grandchildren. And her grandchildren named the pony Ben Chunch. And I thought that was really funny, and I kind of locked onto that as a detail 
to the point where I was just repeating the words Ben Chunch over and over to myself and laughing. <laughs> um, and so now anytime there's any news about Ben Chunch, I tweet about it and we have, you know, we discuss it on the podcast. Um, but she also, the name keeps changing the way they spell it on her blog in updates. So it changed to Ban Chunch. Sometimes it's Ban Chunch one word. Um, and yeah, it's a real mystery. I feel kind of like Sarah Koenig on Serial. Like I'm just constantly trying to find out new information about this horse. And you're sort of narrating your experience and your process, the feelings that you're processing as you learn new information. Yeah. Mostly mostly respect for Martha mixed in with some frustration at not being able to fully understand her decisions at all times. Okay. So what, give me an example of what frustrates you about uh, Ban Chunch, the former Ben Chunch, <laughs> and Martha Stewart, the legendary lifestyle guru. Just that the name would change, and I'm not sure why. And I've tried to contact, like, the barn manager to get uh, answers, and I can't quite get a straight answer. And um, Did I you w- get a sideways answer? Um, just that it was—I got the answer that it was supposed to be Banchunch, but it was originally misspelled as Banchunch. But then recently in an interview, Martha Stewart went back to calling him Banchunch. Um and there's just a lot of side details about, like, where the pony came from, the fact that he used to be named Patrick Stewart, I find really interesting. Um, she got another pony and named it Harrison Ford. Uh, I noticed that because I was confused as to whether the whether the pony was called Ben Chunch or Ban Chunch. Yeah. Because I had remembered when it was called Ben Chunch, but then I had been listening and you were talking about Ban Chunch. Yeah, you have to keep up. It changes a and lot. And so I Googled it, and, and the <laughs> article that I read on Martha Stewart's blog was about Harrison Ford coming to live with them. Yeah, that's the new one. Uh, which is a pony. A Shetland pony. But this is a fell pony, which is slightly larger. She has all sizes of horse, and they're all jet black. And they're, they all look like copies of each other, but slightly smaller every time. Do you think that's one of those things, like how she encourages people to mix and match tableware? Yeah, I think it is similar. I think that's just how her brain works. It's like, it's pretty great. She has to have all her animals sort of coordinated. Were you social as a kid or were you uh, a sitter in the corner and drawer? I was a sitter in the corner, but I always had a couple like really good friends who would draw with me or pretend to be an animal with me. Who did you convince to be an animal with you? Uh, Like I had a couple of best friends who were like just down to get all dirty. (laughs) <laughs> crawl around <laughs> you know what other types other, of other, animals besides other horses? tomboys oh there was a while where i had a game where we pretended we were a squirrel family that was a big one which member of the squirrel family were you um i was the husband i was the the breadwinner oh interesting yeah was that about your feelings of needing to be responsible for everything i don't know this is like a therapy session i love it <laughs> i know now look at this ink plot and tell me what it reminds you of. <laughs> a, ho- a horse. <laughs> I didn't even look at it. <laughs> yes, we've it's di- just what I was already thinking. <laughs> we've diagnosed you with horseophilia. <laughs> you love horses. <laughs> Thank you. You've got horse fever. Here's a check. <laughs> horse fever is probably a terrible disease that some of our listeners suffer from. I apologize. <laughs> so a year or two ago... Uh, a blog post by the creator of BoJack Horseman uh, went viral, and it was about a. It was really lovely. It was about uh, a situation that came up on the show. Um, one of the little background gags that 
Uh, oh, yes. Bojack Horseman is completely full of. Yeah. Like overstuffed with. <laughs> um, could you describe what the what the situation was? Yeah, the gag is just that a car drives by and there's a dog standing next to a man. And then the do- the car whooshes by and it causes the dog's whole face to like slobber and the slobber gets on the man. You know, it's like a it's like a basset hound. Um, so that was the gag. And I drew the dog as a woman. And then that became a huge fight at work. And like the, the dog, the the dog in you know was presumed to be or was in the script a dude, and it was like a businessman or something. Right? Yeah, that's just how it was drawn in the storyboards. Um, but I noticed that a lot of gags had men in it, uh, in them, and you know, uh, that's yeah. Everyone kind of thought it would be gross if it was a woman, and then if it was a woman and a man, that makes it sexual. And if it's two women, you start to wonder why are there two women standing there? And then it complicates the joke, and then it's not funny enough for the three seconds that you need to make people laugh. Um, but I thought that didn't make sense, so I kind of just kept pushing it and pushing it. And uh, yeah, it turned out it was okay to make it a woman. Yeah, I mean, the... <laughs> turns out it was all right. Like, I don't want to, uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to bag on Raphael or, or anybody else no, at Bojack I mean... Horseman because one of the things about this post was that it was a post about coming to understand why it mattered for it to be women and yeah, why he really it could be. analyzed his own objections to it and why it became such a sticking point and why he realized he was wrong. Um, and that's why he's so wonderful to work with because if something like that comes up, we can just talk about it and then figure out. You know, and sometimes I am wrong about things that I bring up, um, but in this case, I won. <laughs> we had a con- we I had a conversation on this show with Gina Davis a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. and one of the things that we talked about was a study that uh, this uh, gender studies institute, gender studies and entertainment institute that she founded, conducted about the gender of background characters yeah. in children's. Entertainment, and I think anybody can understand, uh, or, or most people do understand, how many more male protagonists there are in films, and so how many. many more male protagonists there are in kids' films. But you can uh, you can rationalize that with oh, there's more male directors or more male writers, so it really reflects that whatever. Um, they're writing about things that they know and they don't want to gender switch the character, whatever. Yeah. Um, still problematic, but there's an exp- there's more explanation. And the, when you consider that there was a huge majority of male characters just in backgrounds, in scenes where there was no gender requirements at all, where th- it was purely happenstantial what mm-hmm. gender the characters were, um, it really gives you some understanding of the of the hegemonic power of the male gender that there's just a cultural expectation of maleness it's bizarre that over half the population is women and yet men are seen as the blank slate if there's a woman it really catches the eye and kind of pops out of a background in a way that you don't want you want things to fade into the background and just you know sort of be blank um so yeah it's really unfair and the same goes for race like if you know all the background characters are often white because if they're any other race, you start to look at them and be like, why are they that race? What are these people trying to say? You know, it's just, um, it's really strange the way that works. So we're constantly trying to fight that on the show, I think. And it makes a difference. Like, I know it's just media representation and it's not like actually making people's lives in the better in the real world. But it makes a difference. Like, I've noticed when I write my own stories, I often start out by making the protagonist male. I'm like, well, why do I do that? Why is it an extra step to change them to female? It's because everything I watched as a child, 
all my favorite shows and movies had male protagonists. So that's just the way I'm used to seeing the world, even though I'm a woman and I move through the world as a woman. Can I ask you a, a dumb related question? Of course. When you see a dog, <laughs> do you think of it automatically as a boy? Uh, No. But maybe my... I do, and I have two girl dogs. I, <laughs> I, yeah, I have a girl dog. I don't know. Maybe, yeah, it depends. But like, if if a dog jumped, you know, ran up to me and started slobbering on me, and I started petting it, I would look at the owner, and I would, I think, likely say, "What's his name?" Is it because it's a, a very masculine behavior to jump up and slobber on someone? Well, I know I do a lot of that. So maybe I just relate to this dog. <laughs> I think people see dogs as male and cats as female because of their behaviors. Tuca is a toucan character that you created. Yes. Can you tell me about Tuca? Uh, Tuca, I feel like, is my id in some ways. She's kind of like what I would be like if I had no sort of sense of shame or embarrassment. She's a very loud, brassy toucan lady who wears short shorts. And gets into all sorts of scrapes. Can you give me an example of a situation where it was like, a, you know, the kind of brassiness that you would imagine for yourself but uh, might not have in real life? Uh, there's a part where Tuca goes swimsuit shopping and uh, she finds a top she likes and then she just wanders out of the fitting room without any bottoms on. She's like, <laughs> oh, I got a top. Got to find some bottoms. And she just doesn't care that her butt's hanging out. <laughs> You know, stuff stuff like that, which is, you know, it was inspired by me swimsuit shopping, but I didn't do it quite like that. Why and how is she a toucan? I just think animals with really long noses are good characters. So I've <laughs> drawn comics about a moose and about a horse and now a toucan. I just, I, I also saw a documentary where toucans were stealing the eggs of other birds and eating them. And I like how they, they kind of toss their whole head up in the sky and then gobble up the food. It's just very brassy. Do you ever watch uh, nature documentaries like on Netflix and imagine storylines for all of the animals that are on screen? Yeah, a lot of them. Although a lot of them, they'll make up their own storylines just to keep people engaged in the documentary. They sort of project a lot of human storylines onto the animals. Yeah, give which me a break. That. I like. Yeah, I, I say I want to make my own. Yeah. I want to have a, like an ongoing conversation with the text. Yeah. <laughs> After the break, I'll continue my conversation with Lisa Hannawald. She's a cartoonist and the designer of the Netflix series BoJack Horseman. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, Blink, helping homeowners and renters keep an eye on what's happening at home while they're away. Blink's battery-powered high-definition video cameras use motion sensors to deliver instant video alerts right to your smartphone. Or check in anytime with live view. Cameras can be placed almost anywhere in your home, and installation is super easy too. Learn more at blinkforhome.com. Get 10% off your order with the promo code BLINKNPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Check out the NPR One app for your phone for an exclusive preview of the next episode of Invisibilia. Find brand new episodes of Invisibilia, stories from your local station, and more great podcasts on the NPR One app. It's on your app store now. Lisa Hannah Waltz, my guest. She's got a brand new book. It's called Hot Dog Taste Test. Lisa, why don't you read this piece of which? All right. This piece is called What Will It Be Like to Die? 
We used to play this game in high school where we'd run back and forth, and if you got lifted off the ground, you were out. It was brutal. I was small, and I could last a while by darting, but eventually I'd get scooped up. I was a terrible sport. I didn't want to get tagged out. I drew myself, yelling, no! That's what I think death will feel like. And then there's a gravestone, and it says, I want to keep playing. <laughs> um, it's a pretty brutal combination of death and child feelings. Yeah. Do you think about death? Yeah, a lot. Are you religious? No. Yeah, me either. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> I, I, I hear religion comes in handy when you're thinking about death. But I'm an atheist, so instead there's just nothing. <laughs> what do you think about when you think about death? Um, I think a lot about how it'll be okay. You know, I'll finally, you know, in some ways it's appealing. It's like, oh, you'll get to just kind of let go because it won't matter. Nothing will matter. Um, but then it's like, well, why am I doing all this stuff? <laughs> um, and then I think about the people who be left behind. Uh, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot there. Uh, once Ira Glass talked about, on This American Life, talked about being afraid of death. It was so nice to hear someone talk frankly about fear mm-hmm. of death. And I mentioned it to my wife, and, you know, I don't, I, 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 I don't want to speak for my wife's religious convictions, but she's, a, you know, agnostic anyway. Mm-hmm. And um, she's not afraid of death at all. Um, and I believe her. She's my wife. She's pretty frank with me. <laughs> And um, that must be so nice to not be afraid. I know. And she she said to me, well, I wasn't I feel like I wasn't bothered before I was born. It was fine. Yeah. And that was kind of an amazing thought to me. It did not stick. I (laughs) want to make that clear. (laughs) It stuck rhetorically, but not emotionally. I'm still terrified of death. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's a The, the thought of not existing is profoundly disturbing to most people, I think. It's but it's just like a primary drive. Like I must exist, I must propagate. Well, and I think there's also a secondary drive, especially if you're an artist, which is I must make some kind of mark. Yeah, maybe it's maybe it's a similar drive to people having children. I don't know, um, but yeah, it's like I must do as much as possible. Partly because I'm just excited. There's like a lot of stuff I want to do, and I'll just be bummed out if I don't get to do it. What have you not done that you would like to do? Um. Well, like right now, I'm directing a music video, and I've always wanted to do that more than anything in the world. So that's exciting. More than anything in the world? Well, just like, well, there's a lot of stuff I want to do, but it's like the one thing that was really on my list of like things I want to do with my art that I haven't done before that I think would be challenging. I mean, to be fair, you got to swim with those otters. Yeah, I didn't even know that that was a thing I wanted. Yeah, you, the... well, you introduced it to me, and now it's all I can think about. Well, you can do it. I saw a picture of Kyle Kinane doing it. Yeah. <sighs> that guy. If he gets to do it, you should get to do it. I know! <laughs> he's already the voice of Comedy Central. I auditioned for that and didn't get it. <laughs> now he's swimming with otters and I don't get to? Come on, Kinane. You can sign up for their 2016 season of Otter Swimming. He's also significantly funnier than me. He's pretty funny. He's one of the funniest guys ever. He's a very good stand-up. He's hilarious. (laughs) All those otters. 
really all I want to do is just talk more about these otters. They raised their prices recently. Really? How much does it cost to swim with otters? I think now it's 300 per person. But it is like a full, it's like a half day of being with animals because they have a whole, you know, a, like place with tons of animals. There's and this like is a kangaroo a, and there's armadillos and like. And this is a nonprofit. This is not a, this isn't some kind of uh, like weird roadside attraction. No, no. They they raise money for, for children and children in need and yeah it's great what other good animals was there there um they had a sloth that you could touch oh what does a sloth feel like it's uh pretty bristly i would say mm-hmm. but i got to feed it um a banana what did it just grab the banana and stuff it in its face i mean it's it's so slow moving you kind of have to put the banana in its mouth and then push it in with your finger <laughs> <laughs> Every animal on that property ate banana. That's like what fuels the entire establishment. Wow. All wild animals love bananas. Well, Lisa Hannawalt, it's been a joy and a delight to have you on the show. <laughs> I'm sorry that I wasted so much of your time on NPR talking about otters. Oh, no. No apology needed. It's my pleasure. <laughs> Lisa Hannawalt is the author of the wonderful new book, Hot Dog Taste Test. Uh, You can also see her art on the Netflix show BoJack Horseman, for which uh, she does all of the visual design. And uh, you can also hear her as one of the co-hosts of MaximumFun.org's very own podcast, Baby Geniuses. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. For the past few years, Wyatt Cenac has been running a beloved stand-up show in New York called Night Train. Now Night Train has become a series on NBC's streaming platform, CISO, with Sinek as the host. If you don't know Wyatt by name, you might recognize his face from The Daily Show. He was a correspondent there for years. Here's how he describes himself, or at least what he looks like. Uh, He's talking here about taking his pit bull for a walk. But it's very weird. Like, people, people are very judgy about pit bulls. I remember there'd be times where we'd be walking, and if she barked at somebody, like, I didn't look like a guy with his dog. I looked like I belonged in the background of a DMX video. <laughs> but, like, way far background. Like, I'm DMX's cousin from Portland. Ronaldo. Who has, like, a soul food taco truck. And takes care of his two dogs, Nina Simone and Pizza Party. Uh, Wyatt Snack is also the star of an upcoming TBS show called People of Earth. Wyatt, welcome back to Bullseye. It's great to get to talk to you again. Oh, thanks for having me. And Pizza Party is a good name for a dog. It is. And, uh, and Nina Simone and Pizza Party is a very evocative mix of dog names. It really is, yeah. That It feels like there's a story there about each of those dogs and how they got their names and where the person who named those dogs was in their life. <laughs> I also, like, in listening to that, I hadn't thought a ton about DMX lately, but when DMX was at his peak, you know, he was a huge rapper and probably, like, one of our nation's greatest entertainers where one of the main things he did was bark like a dog. Bark like a dog, and his music videos were ostensibly promoting dog fighting, which then a few years later we got upset at Michael Vick for, 
And I feel like part of his defense should have been, well, but wait a minute. You all love those DMX videos. <laughs> I was just trying to be like DMX. And then he should have barked into a microphone. <laughs> so, Wyatt, there are and have been a lot of stand-up anthology shows on TV. Uh, what makes your show different? Like, why should it exist? That's a good question. I feel selfishly that it should exist because it's my show. Uh, But beyond that, if you're going to make an anthology show and make a a showcase, especially one based on a real show, to me it seems like part of the idea of that is just trying to get a sense of what – comedy is like in this particular city at this particular time i think if you look at meltdown i think meltdown is a good snapshot of what the current los angeles comedy scene is i think if you go back to the invite them up album you got that sense of that's what the new york comedy scene was in the early 2000s and You know, I think you look at all the old evening at the improvs and there is some sense of just from the way people are dressed and the style of jokes that they're telling and how the crowd responds to things. There's something that's kind of nice in seeing a bit of a document. I uh, love a few of the things that you just listed. You know, I've got that Invite Them Up album. Night Train feels very different to me. One of the biggest differences without putting too fine a point on it, is that most of these stand-up comedy scene documentations uh, tend real heavily toward white dudes. But Night Train seems like a pretty strong divergence from that. Yeah, and I will say that I think when Marianne and I started putting Night Train together... There was a sense of trying to not just have a show that was all white dudes. There was this idea that I could speak to from my own personal experience. I would like to put more of an emphasis on trying to create a place where all those comedians can coexist and it doesn't feel quite so isolating if you're not a specific type Years ago, a friend of mine, uh, who I'm sure you know from uh, from stand-up comedy world, W. Kamau Bell, was doing a show in the Bay Area, and he built in this gimmick, which was half-price tickets if you bring somebody of another race. I think when I first thought about it, I was like, oh, cute gimmick, Kamau, you know? <laughs> like, that's fun. Like, maybe you'll get a, a, a note in the San Francisco Bay Guardian about that. Right. Um, good work. Uh, But more than that, I think he had the sense to realize that if he didn't take the opportunity to say people of color are welcome at this show, that there was an audience that would – an audience of people of color who would presume that this show was not for them. And it seems like just doing something that says you are – allowed or invited into this space really opens a lot of doors. And I imagine opening those doors means a lot to comics who are who are used to performing for 
white audiences and kind of having to do the extra work involved in that. That's what you hope. That's that's what that's what you want people to to feel comfortable. You want them to feel welcome both as performers and as audience members. You know, comedy clubs in the early days, they were places that maybe only only guys would go. And so all the comedians tended to be guys and they would talk about how much you know, they didn't like their wives and comedy was just for men. And then you had comedians, female comedians that started to break through that world and find success, but also creating a space where now more women wanted to come to shows. Now the space became a little more diverse and a little more inclusive. And all of a sudden you had backlash of people, you know, people who liked it the old way saying, well, we still like it the old way, and oh, women are ruining comedy, and they're making it too PC or whatever. And then eventually people get used to that, and then another group comes in, and all of a sudden it gets a little more inclusive, and the world becomes a little funnier, and it becomes a little richer. And to me, I feel like by trying to have lineups that are more inclusive, by trying to create a show where there isn't just one sort of singular voice that goes that stylistically goes through the show i also hope that it is presenting a richer tapestry of what comedy is and the boundaries different comedians can push not just because of their ethnic makeup their gender their sexual orientation but that they they are just presenting a richer tapestry to the audience and those comedians are pushing each other to do different things and to look at the world in different ways. After a break, I'll continue talking to Wyatt Cenac about his new stand-up series, Night Train. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. A quick shout-out to one of our sponsors, Casper. They're an online retailer for mattresses. Casper mattresses are American-made and obsessively engineered for comfort. They use two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, to give just the right amount of sink and bounce. And they have a risk-free trial. You can try out your Casper mattress for 100 days with free delivery and returns. It's outrageous comfort at a polite price. So go to casper.com bullseye to check out their options. And they've got a special offer for Bullseye listeners. Use the promo code BULLSEYE to redeem $50 toward a Casper mattress that works for you. Terms and conditions apply. NPR's Invisibilia is back with a new season of stories about the invisible forces that shape human behavior. This week, hosts Alex Spiegel and Lulu Miller journey to an Ohio prison to explore whether our personalities are as stable as we think. You can listen and subscribe to Invisibilia at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Wyatt Snack, and he's got a new show on the streaming platform CISO called Night Train. This is Wyatt talking about Captain America. Maybe you've heard of him and how the premise of Captain America is he's a white dude from World War II who got unfrozen in contemporary times, whether those contemporary times are, you know, the civil rights movement or 2016. Captain America is a guy from World War II who got jacked up on steroids, then frozen in time, and now has to live in the present 
as a man with old man thoughts and a young man's face. Like, think about how difficult it is for your grandparents not to call people Oriental. At least they have the benefit of looking old. This dude looks like somebody you would find on Tinder. Like, that's what's for him. He has to use all of his super strength to seem super tolerant. Superman's weakness is kryptonite. Captain America's is just a slip of the tongue. Why, on the, on the pilot episode of Night Train, you walk out on stage wearing a couch and sweater, uh, which is, for folks that, that don't know, it's like the, the sweater that the dude wears in the Big Lebowski. It's a type of hand-knit uh, big shawl cardigan. On the front of it is like, you know, snowflakes or whatever. And on the back of it is a like a uh, sweater sized portrait of Malcolm X. Yes. Um I guess well my first question is where'd you get that dope ass sweater? My sub question is uh did you pick did you put on that sweater thinking like oh yeah when I walk out to host the first episode of my new internet television show I'm going to wear this Malcolm X sweater. That's going to blow people's minds. There was some thought to blowing people's minds with the sweater. I I got very lucky. There was a company in Canada called Granted Clothing, and they make those couch and sweaters. And, yeah, there was the previous year when I'd been on tour, I was on tour for a lot of the winter, and so I would wear that sweater, and it just felt like, this very nice contradictory piece of clothing that on the one hand you have this couch and sweater which to me always evoked images of ski lodges and you know places like sitting by a roaring fire drinking cocoa and putting on your skis and all that stuff stuff i'd never done and never never felt particularly that i had access to and then on the back of it is Malcolm X and so it, it it which felt like the antithesis of a ski lodge and and <laughs> so when so when we did the show to me that was the thing I felt like as somebody who lives in Brooklyn who didn't grow up in New York was born here and lived here as a child but left but then I'm also a person who is gentrifying the place because I did come here from somewhere else. So I I've I've always felt a little bit of that contradictory thing of oh yeah, I'm a little bit gentrifier and a little bit gentrified and yeah, to me that sweater that sweater felt like the the wool embodiment of all of that contradiction. I want to play another clip from my guest Wyatt Sanak and his new show Night Train. Um He's talking about gentrification in Brooklyn where he lives and the different stages of gentrification, specifically the stage where CrossFit studios start to move in. Like, that is a form of gentrification I was not prepared for. Like, I liked my gentrification when it was just, like, ladies with cat glasses and people who make bacon-flavored ice cream... 
It was not, I did not in any way expect it to turn into like upwardly mobile, really strong people <laughs> who could push me out of my neighborhood physically. You were in a really lovely movie uh, five or ten years ago called Medicine for Melancholy about gentrification in San Francisco, um, which is where I grew up. Uh, and I wonder if you have some of the same uncomfortable feelings about gentrification that I do, which is to say that there is this kind of revulsion that is mixed with the realization, oh, wait, I am upper middle class white collar and as much as my people are the people being pushed out, my people are also the people doing the pushing. Yeah, that's it's a very strange thing. And I, I think, yeah, to your point, growing up in San Francisco, I'm sure as you watch it happen around you and, and seeing things move in that are that are things that you would be excited about, everybody loves a great restaurant. I think the problem becomes when some people can't have access to that restaurant, that starts to become the issue. And that when services that are now being provided to a community that weren't being provided five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, because at some point that area got written off as hopeless. But if those resources aren't there for those things to exist that's what's unfortunate. And that's what's unfortunate is then when you see that changeover happen, it's it's as though people are saying, you are worthless. And now all of a sudden, the neighborhood has value, but you're still being treated as the worthless one and you're being pushed out and you don't get to you don't get to reap the benefits of that. And that's yeah, that's unfortunate. And I think maybe I should be asking my neighbors, what are the things that you want to see in this neighborhood and maybe I, maybe I, with my privilege, can help get those things for you as well as a bacon-flavored ice cream shop for me. <laughs> I feel like one of the things that I found the most distressing uh, when I was a teenager and the neighborhood uh, that I grew up in in San Francisco, the mission was starting to change. And that change is now. The transformation is complete. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg yeah. lives near where I grew up. Uh, I don't remember if his house is in Norteño or Sureño territory, um, but I don't imagine it's a big concern to him because he just uh, drives into his car elevator uh, when he gets home from Facebook. Um, <gasps> that's true. All of that is real. Um, wow. I know. <laughs> he He built a car elevator. You know, cars don't like to take stairs. <laughs> it's a point taken, Wyatt. No. But anyway, one of the things that was most distressing to me um, was that when people started moving in, the manifestation of privilege was not just about people losing their homes, but also culturally that people who came in because of their economic privilege and ethnic cultural privilege, were able to basically treat the neighborhood like they were making it more ideal. 
uh, ra- so they they were like you know it was like a almost a colonial situation in that they just didn't have to engage with that idea that maybe the other people in the neighborhood had other priorities. Yeah, that's that actually it reminds me. There's a town in Utah, and I want to say the town might be called St. George or something like that, and I wish I'd look it up, but I turned my phone off so that <laughs> it didn't ring while we were talking. I was trying to be nice, and now I'm looking like an idiot. Thanks a lot. It's There was, there was a book, and a, the book I believe was called like Discovering Whitopia, and this writer went to these six fast-growing cities around the U.S., they are these places where there is a lot of upwardly mobile white flight happening. So there's all this money and there are all these people moving. And this one particular town, it was a Mormon town. And it's a be- you know beautiful town. But as non-Mormons started moving in, they started wanting to change the culture. And they wanted a bar. And they wanted to have a nightclub. And it was this weird other version of gentrification that was happening where it was a group of people who were already financially stable and secure who were being pushed out by even wealthier like you had white people gentrifying other white people and they were all financially doing pretty well for themselves and it's just it's interesting because it goes to your point that there are cultural things that for these people who are moving in who were like, oh, I love it here because it looks just like Leave it to Beaver. They weren't content with it as is. They still then wanted to change it. And I wonder if after 10, 15 years, they change it into something that they no longer like anymore themselves. And it's... Yeah, how does how does one be respectful of culture in that process uh, while also, yeah, trying to find a place where they feel at home? So, Wyatt, last year you went on our friend Mark Marin's show and talked about um, getting in a big fight with Jon Stewart when you worked on The Daily Show over – a bit that John Stewart had done on the show while you were out of town on a field assignment. It was a bit where John Stewart did a voice for Herman Cain, the uh, Republican presidential candidate. And it was a bit that I would describe as like entirely defensible, like uh, not a monstrous act, but also something that made you uncomfortable, especially as the only black guy around. Um I wonder when you talked about having had this fight with Jon Stewart, um, which you brought it up in a meeting. Uh, you had a real you had a real shout it out with Stewart. And as you told the story on Mark's show, you ended up, you know, basically sitting outside and crying. I wonder if you were prepared for the reaction that came from having told that story? I wasn't really prepared for the reaction. I honestly honestly wasn't thinking about it because we were sort of talking about everything in a larger context. And it was a larger conversation than that one particular incident when it did turn into 
something that people were talking about. I was honestly, I was honestly surprised because I'd been talking about other things like my family and stuff like that, that I was honestly more like, okay, that to me feels like a more uncomfortable thing to be talking about than this job where there were issues at the job. So when it did kind of blow up into something, it was definitely a surprise. I was just getting text messages and people yelling at me on Twitter and those types of things. Afterwards, I I talked with John. I reached out to John, and we talked again about it. And, and I, I feel like one of the things that I had said to him was seeing this thing kind of turn into something, how bizarre after after five years working with the dude and working in a world where we did a lot of, you know, sort of satirical media criticism. And this is the type of thing that we would probably be looking at in a morning meeting thinking, why is somebody paying attention to this? To now be sort of the subject of that, it felt very much like this very weird thing of, oh, this is what we, this is what I spent five years sort of comedically railing against with you is this sort of clickbait culture and this headlines without context. And we just became one of those headlines. It was a very strange, it was a very strange sort of a situation. To my eye, it spoke to something that I think is endemic in American culture, which is uh, people and uh, especially white people really struggling with the idea of anything of seeing racism as anything other than a binary um it's a story that's about you know a dude you admired and a situation that you were uncomfortable with and ambivalent about that becomes a story about black guy says john stewart racist Right. And I think there's a big difference between racism and privilege. And I think that's that's also what was getting put out of context is that with privilege, there is this sense of I need to be aware of other voices and other opinions. And if somebody else if somebody else is uncomfortable, we maybe need to talk about that and figure out what that's about, because there is a privilege that might be getting in the way of understanding sometimes. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Wyatt Cenac, the host of the new stand-up show Night Train on CISO. I was reading an interview and you cited a rap verse that I think about a lot as something that you think about a lot. It's the last verse of the outcast song Elevators. And the song is sort of... Uh, biographical song about outcast elevators meaning like the way that they're coming up in the world right not the ones that you put your car in if you're mark zuckerberg <laughs> and the last verse is andre is an andre 3000 verse it's about him sort of talking to uh, a fan that he meets who presumes him to be rich and you know one of the lines is i live by the beat like you live check to check it's a verse that I think about a lot. I wonder what it means to you, like why it's something that's important to you. I find it important because I think it speaks to that notion that we are all more more alike than we perhaps 
give credit to. And I think especially when it comes to that idea of celebrity, that idea winds up overvaluing the perception versus the reality. And the reality is that just because you're a musician or you're a movie star, those are all jobs. And those jobs require you to work and it requires people to want your services. And there's somebody who I'm sure started at an entry-level job at Coca-Cola in Atlanta, and they could work there for the next 30 years and get themselves a pension and do all that. There's a musician that hopes they can do that, but it's a, it's maybe a, it's a, maybe a bit more volatile of an economy being a musician and I think when I when I heard that line in that song, it really peeled that back on some level to me. And at the time, too, I remember I was working in a mall and I remember seeing musicians who would be coming to town, come into the mall and come into the sporting goods store that I worked at. And it was this realization that they are regular people they also want that ability to have a regular life. That said, every now and again, I get to, you know, do something like go to the Grammys. But the Grammys are, on some level, like a work conference. Uh, they're not that much fun. <laughs> well, Wyatt, I'm so grateful you took all this time to come be on Bullseye. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I hope I'll see you soon. No, thank you very much for having me. Wyatt Cenac's great new show on CISO, uh, the NBC streaming platform, which you can get on pretty much any streaming device and on Amazon streaming, is called Night Train. He's also the star of the show People of Earth, which is coming up on TBS this fall. Every week on Bullseye, we like to close with a recommendation from me, your host, my name is Jesse. It's the Outshot. All sport mixes physical talent and practiced skill. Football players memorize playbooks. Curlers do curls to build their sweeping muscles. But here's one thing that's rare. A skill so profound that it renders strength and speed irrelevant. A thing that any Yahoo who's practiced enough can do that completely embarrasses the biggest, strongest, fastest brute on the field. I'm talking about knuckleballs. The knuckleball, chopped foul, and Wakefield is ahead 0-2. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. Three knuckleballs. Home plate umpire Steve Ripley with a tough task tonight, staying with the knuckleball. Oftentimes, by the time the catcher gloves it, it looks like a ball. Bear in mind, it's where the ball passes the batter in the strike zone. Right now, a dude named Stephen Wright is the best pitcher in the American League. He's 31 years old. He only stuck in the majors last year. And he's making the best hitters in baseball look like idiots. And he's doing it with the knuckleball. That is strike three. First strikeouts in the major leagues for Stephen Wright, and he will keep that baseball. 
As Saltalamacchia will send it to the Red Sox dugout. His first strikeout. Yep, souvenir on the knuckleball right there. Top of the strike zone. Reddick didn't like it, but uh, Wright picks up his first major league strike. That one pops out of the mitt. Swing and a miss. Down he goes. Strike three. Second K for Stephen Wright. Payoff pitch. Waved down and missed. Down he goes. Big K for Stephen Wright there. That'll be his third. I'll give you a quick rundown of how this works if you're not a baseball fan. So baseballs have a set of seams, two sort of horseshoe shapes connected at their ends. The leather panels of a baseball look a little bit like two rounded hourglasses. So if you grip the ball across the fat part of that hourglass and snap it with your wrist as you deliver it, four seams cut through the air, sort of like the dimples on a golf ball. The ball flies fast and straight. So straight that it seems to rise a little bit as it comes down from the pitcher's mound towards the plate. That's a fastball. Grip it around the edge of the hourglass. Twist as you throw. The seams cut the air and the ball drops and sweeps and slows down, too. That's a curveball. Slider's sort of a hard curve. A change-up's thrown like a fastball, but it comes across slower. Sinkers and cutters are fastballs with the hand in a little bit of a different place. Like almost everything in baseball, Throwing any of these pitches is a profoundly skilled act of athleticism. They require freakish bodies and years of practice. But the knuckleball is different. You don't snap the knuckleball. You don't muscle it. You hold it with your fingertips just tight enough. And instead of sending it tumbling toward the plate with all the force you can muster, you kind of push it like you're launching a toy boat. If you do it right, it doesn't spin or even tumble. It floats, and as it floats, it dances, dashing left or right or down so unexpectedly that catchers who catch knuckleball pitchers wear huge gloves just so they can keep the ball in front of them. Sometimes they don't even bother trying to catch it. Normal pitchers spend decades trying to refine repeatable pitches, pitches that move just as they expect so that they can paint a corner, so they can subvert a hitter's timing, pinpoint a weakness. A knuckleball is the opposite of all of that. A knuckleballer throws it, and he hopes that it does something he's never seen before. He hopes for a surprise. Even a few rotations of the ball in the air, and a knuckleball's a batting practice fastball. Once it starts chopping that air, it's like that batter's hitting off a little league. But if there aren't any rotations, if it floats, it dances. Can't do anything about that. Hit it like he threw it, I guess. A chopper right here. The ball just almost dies. Lowell knows right away he's got no chance. Looks like he and Dickie are having a little bit of an exchange there. Said, how am I supposed to hit it when he can't catch it? <laughs> Boy, there's another good one. Just 63 miles an hour. So many sports stories are about gifts from God. And so many more are Rudy tales. You'll get there if you want it so bad it hurts type things. But the knuckleball doesn't come from God. And if you want the knuckleball too bad, it'll start tumbling and then all of a sudden you're throwing batting practice. The knuckleball is skill and it's also philosophy. By the time I was a teenager, I knew that I'd never play pro ball. Most of us did. If we had any self-awareness. I just didn't have the gifts. And you probably didn't either. There's still a part of me, though. I think, like, if radio went sour, 
and podcasting was yesterday's news, and maybe I could round up a catcher with one of those big giant mitts. And I went out to the rec field every day, and I tried pushing that knuckler. I could do it. I held that dream in my fingertips. Not too loose, not too tight. That's my outshot. He's got it going on. Wakefield, you see this. Knuckleball straight down. That's like a curveball. 0-2 waste pitch almost, and he swings at it. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Dan Gallucci, production fellow at Maximum Fun, is a body Pirello. Our production assistant is Christian Duenas. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. Incidentally, Ibarianex hosts a photography podcast called The Candid Frame, and I just listened to the most recent episode with Noe Montes, and I really loved it. So if you like photography, check out The Candid Frame. Our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music, and thanks this week to Noriko Okabe for engineering help. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister podcast, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture, hosted by comedian Guy Branham. This week, Christian Duenas reports back from the gaming convention E3. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.